From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's the show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. In each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is another co-founder of Monstrous Femme Films, Hannah May Cumming. Hannah also directed the Giallo-inspired short Fanatico, which is streaming for free on Alter's YouTube channel. Welcome to the show, Hannah. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. We are for so excited, especially to talk about this movie that you brought tonight. Uh, but uh, before we kind of get to the now, how were you introduced to horror? Oh, God. Well, I was a big Goosebumps fan growing up. I still am. <laughs> um, Very that good. Was, yeah, that was definitely it. And then I loved like all things Tim Burton, this movie... And my mom was, like, big with Halloween when I was growing up, so I was just always around all things creepy. But uh, definitely Goosebumps was my gateway horror. The books or the, like, the TV show? Um, both. Or both? Both? Both. But I'm a big fan of the show. Um, I actually, like, 
for my shorts, I'm very inspired by the Goosebumps uh, TV show and how they structured each episode. Oh, yeah. So, so that's kind of what we've been trying to do with our films is structure them in that same like 20 minute plot structure. So uh, what, what what's the favorite Goosebumps, either episode or, or book for you? Oh, uh, it came from Beneath the Sink. I love mm. like the really wacky yes. ones. You know the one? <laughs> I'm trying to think about this one. Yes. What's that it's, one about? It's the sponge under the sink. Yeah. Um, the mm-hmm. gruel. <laughs> it's like I say, yeah, it's a sentient sponge. <laughs> yeah, I'm it's trying. great. Oh, okay. I do remember this cover. Yeah, it was one of the earlier ones, I think, from season one. And then I really love Attack of the Lawn Gnomes. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, oh, God, what's the other one? Welcome to Camp Nightmare. That's a great two-parter episode that I love. I'm too old to like have seen the the television shows, but um, I I was I was raised on the books. Like I love I love the books. I'm trying to remember if I've seen any of these. They're on Netflix. If you ever want to oh. kill twenty minutes, oh, they and you are. Wanna, yeah, they are. If you ever want to kill twenty minutes and watch something crazy, I recommend. Okay, I do oh remember the book Welcome to Camp Nightmare. That was one of the the earlier ones. Uh, that was number nine in the series. So I do remember reading that one as a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I actually haven't read all of the books. I've only read a few books, but I've religiously watched the show even today. <laughs> so um, so what were some other movies besides what we're talking about today that really freaked you out as a kid? I have a confession to make, actually. Um, okay. I, okay. I was like racking my brain trying to think of a film that scared me as a kid because I was a really fearless kid. I oh. I was not scared of scary movies when I was younger. I even like talked to my mom about it and I was like, is there anything that I'm missing? This is the closest I came um to being like really creeped out by something. And oh. I think Yeah. <laughs> so I I would say this one um and Jaws, of course. That scared every little kid. Of course, Jaws. Yeah. <laughs> it sure did. <laughs> it sure fucking did. So you know, you said you don't really get that scared, which is amazing. I wish I had had that as a child because I was the scaredest child that ever was. Really? <laughs> but um, I know I was terrible. Like I loved watching scary movies, but I would like be ter- I would have like the lights on at night, and I just loved being scared. But I also hated being scared. So I was one of those kids, and now I feel like I can watch anything and like barely bat an eye, which is sad, isn't it? It is sad. <laughs> it's not pleasant to like watch something you know is supposed to freak you out and not not be affected by it. <laughs> I know. So in that vein, what draws you to horror now as an adult? You know, I I love like just the creepiness of everything and the the weirdness in the camp. Like I was a weird kid and I think that's where I um, <laughs> feel an attachment to horror is because it's just for the other, you know, especially with this yeah. movie. This movie is really crazy. And I felt really connected to Coraline too. So do you have a favorite movie as or a favorite horror movie as an adult? I do. I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1974. Hell yeah. And then um, Wicker Man 1973. Oh, yeah. I love Frankenhooker. I think one of my all-time favorites is uh, Hello, Mary Lou Prom Night 2, though. From oh, 1987. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, we talked about that with Carly, too. Yeah, yeah. We, right? we all love it. <laughs> It's just yeah. such like my favorite part is the 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 horse in her room when it comes to to life. <laughs> it's so wild. It's so wild. It's so sexual. 
It so is. <laughs> <laughs> and I've never even seen the first prom night. Like, I just, I know it's Jamie Lee Curtis, but I've heard, much. like, no need. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, this is, I mean, this is the answer for when people are like, name a movie where the sequel's better. Uh, Prom Night 2. I mean, that's just, it goes without saying. 100%. <laughs> Although I do really love that, like, 15-minute long disco dance number in the first one. <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. Oh. Okay. <laughs> it might be worth it just for that, but that is on YouTube, I think. And there's a great, like, original song that plays during that scene, I think. That oh, really? is a worth a listen. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'll still watch it. <laughs> so I, I know that you've, it sounds like you've been uh, kind of uh, not jaded, but fearless, I guess would be a better term since a kid. But do you, have you seen any movie as an adult that like scared you at all? I have actually, I, I get more scared as an adult than I did as a kid. Oh, um, really? Okay. Yeah. Mm, oh, interesting. Creep. Um, oh, tw- oh yeah, 2014, Mark Duplass. That freaked me out. <laughs> so I, all, that movie also freaked me out. I when I used to live with my dad, I watched it when they were gone for like a week, and I watched it at night. And they have a, like a pretty decent sized condo, and I kept all the lights on on the apartment all night and like <laughs> could not sleep after. I didn't think it was going to be that scary, but Jesus Christ, I was, I locked everything. I was so terrified of that movie. I was terrified. Mark Duplass was going to come into my house or send me a weird package. I was really scared. <laughs> with that weird, with the weird mask. <laughs> okay, oh but, yeah. But Peach Fuzz. Peach Fuzz is cute. Peach I mean, fuzz. we've had this conversation before Mary Beth, but I know, but I hate Peach Fuzz. <laughs> I think he's doing his like foreboding hip gyrations with I the was Peach just Fuzz about to mask say, on. Yep. It's like it's sexy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! All right. I mean, I mean oh. we talked about that a little bit on the best of. I think it was the best of the decade list. When yeah, we had, and but I, I think I blocked it out because I couldn't. <laughs> I didn't want to think of. <laughs> I mean, he's he's just moving his hips and it's like, okay, I'm working with this. What 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 are we doing now? What can I say? I have nothing to say. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh my god. Nothing to say. <laughs> I I really love that movie. I think it's one of the best It's great. Recent horror movies. And then uh Lake it's Mungo so... really freaked me out too. But <laughs> I watched that like in the middle of the night a few months ago with my partner and I was like trying to wake him up because he fell asleep and I was like getting really scared and I was like I can't be experiencing this by myself right now like I need you to wake up such a good middle of the night movie I know that's a weird thing to say but it's like so fucking creepy like all the lights are off and it's pitch black oh that's such a good I might do that tonight yeah Hmm. (laughs) Lake Mungo was wait Lake Mungo is one of my all-time favorite movies really well you love found footage right yes so you said creep and creep and Lake Mungo I was like Yes, very yeah. good. But actually, that, that ties to our next question. Like, do you have a favorite subgenre within horror that you like prefer or really like to watch? Um, I really like found footage, and I like Giallo. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, <laughs> I cannot wait to talk to you about Giallo. Yeah, <laughs> but found footage is like one of my favorites. I just think it's so, you know, original, and it's really scary because it's so real. Yeah. Um, and you, you, it blurs the line of like what's real and what's fake, and and that really gets me for sure. Besides Creep, what would, would be one of your favorites? Um, Blair Witch. That was one of the first horror movies I ever saw, and that really freaked me Classic. out. Actually, 
is fucking creepy. It still creeps me out today, even though you know it's going to happen. It's <laughs> very good vibes. Absolutely. Yeah. I would say like the one, <laughs> definitely the one subgenre that can scare me is sound footage for sure. Ah, that's music to my ears. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and what is, what is your, one of your favorite Giallo films? Uh, Terry and I have been going on a Giallo journey on we the have. podcast and it's, I've never watched it until like last year, this year. And so I have had a, a very quick education and I would like to know your favorite and if I have seen it. <laughs> Ooh, well, a lot of people dispute whether or not this is a Giallo, but Phenomena is <gasps> my favorite, 100%. <laughs> we I literally love, we j- <laughs> t- just talked to Keith Thomas, the director of uh, The Vigil, about that movie because that movie scared him as a kid. It's so good. It's it was, so good. It's the it's main so inspiration good. for my short. Um, I was I was going to ask you about that. Um, if like it felt like phenomena when she comes to the school, I was uh-huh. like, this feels just like phenomena. We so. even tried to cast an actress that reminded me of a young Jennifer Connelly. <laughs> I can see that. Now that you say I can that, definitely yeah. see that. Actually, I guess now that we have started talking about Fanatico, can you tell our listeners what your short is about? Yeah, so uh, my short, Fanatico, is a neo-giallo. It's about a Catholic boarding school, and there are these, uh, the students are sex workers at night, and there are these killings um, that are happening, and this new girl who comes to town, who has these, like, psychic visions, has to try to figure out what's going on and uh, figure out who's killing all the girls there. What leapt out to me at the, from the very beginning was the use of the use of colors and the way the opening sequ- the sequence is, is framed it reminded me a whole lot of well giallo but also of like the grindhouse films of like the 1970s where it's like a lot of neon and they're in front of like the kind of liquor store and it's just it's selling like a color and like sex and also um death <laughs> and I, so I, I was I was kind of curious what made you decide to make a giallo or an Italian horror inspired short film as the first film for Monstrous Femme Films. Well, first of all, thank you. That's such a compliment. <laughs> um, I guess, you know, I was in film school. I was like a sophomore, I think, when I made this and I hadn't really Amazing. made anything. Oh my god! Thank you. <laughs> I hadn't really made anything, and I saw Phenomena. That was the first Jalo I ever saw. I saw it in a theater. My partner dragged me to it, and was blown away by it. Loved it, and was like, "I, I want to make something like this. I want to make something that is stylish and different from what I had seen a lot of my peers making at school." Mm-hmm. Um. And so we just wanted to do kind of like a love letter to the genre, and we didn't think anything was going to come of it. It was like basically it began as an exercise in filmmaking, and it just grew into something so much bigger. But it was definitely just feeling a lack of like style in current horror and wanting to kind of bring that back but put a modern twist on it because – I mean, as fans of Jalo, we can agree that it's very misogynistic most of the time. And I think putting a modern sensibility on a genre that we all really love is an interesting way to like resurrect it. Yeah, it really it was absolutely gorgeous to watch. And I love the way you use some of like 
the the all of the techniques, but made something that was fresh. You know what I mean? Like it didn't. It felt like you were taking those conventions and making something like you said for now. And I just felt so cool to see that, especially because not. I don't really think there's any giallos directed by women. Are there? Correct me if I'm wrong, but not that I know of. I can't. I don't think so. Think. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, of course. So kind of going back to uh, to Monstrous Femme Films, though, how how did you meet Carly and Emma? I actually have known Carly for years. She was like friends with people I went to high school with when she lived okay. in Arizona. Oh, wow. And uh, she moved up to Portland to go to college and we kind of like reconnected. But yeah, I, I knew her in high school. Oh, okay. And, and oh, wow. then... Uh, she decided she wanted to do film. She wanted to work on Fanatico and our relationship kind of blossomed from there. We decided we wanted to keep making horror together. And then Emma, I met, I found Emma over Instagram. I really, (laughs) yeah, I really like loved her whole vibe and knew that she had costume experience and a degree in like costume, uh, fashion history. And so I asked her to come on to costume Fanatico and we just really clicked. We became great friends and decided we wanted to turn this into something bigger, make more films together. That's awesome. That's amazing. And also the costumes in this movie are so good. Like all of like the boot, like the the pleather boots and like the beautiful <laughs> 70s outfits. I like the first the first character who was murdered in the church. I was like her outfit is everything, like down to the hat. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, we're big like vintage fashion fans. A lot of those costumes are my mom's. She has like a vintage collection. No way. Oh wow. Yeah. That's so so cool. <laughs> thank you. So, you know, we've talked about how you got into horror, about your short film, but Hannah, what movie did you bring with you today for us to talk about? Today I have brought Coraline. Yes. <laughs> I'm so excited to talk about Coraline. So um, let me just read everyone a quick synopsis if you haven't seen it. So while exploring her new home, a girl named Coraline, voiced by Dakota Fanning, discovers a secret door uh, behind which lies an alternate world that closely mirrors her own, but is actually way better. She rejoices in her discovery until other mother and the rest of her parallel family try to keep her there forever. I love this movie so much. So, Hannah, can you tell us about the first time you saw this movie? I know you said it didn't necessarily scare you, but what parts of it really stood out to you? Like, were there any after effects? Tell us your horror story. So I saw this movie in the theater. It came out in 2009. So how old would I have been? Oh, God, math. (laughs) (laughs) I was young. I was a kid, and I saw this with my mom and my sister, and I was one of those kids that, like, would get really obsessed with a character from a movie and just, like, want to become them, Mm. and I felt Mm -hmm. really connected to Coraline and just developed, like, a really unhealthy obsession with this film. I would watch it all the time. My mom made me a Coraline doll, like, my very own button-eyed Coraline oh, wow. doll. I wore wow. <laughs> I wore like a yellow rain jacket everywhere. I don't know. Like I just became really obsessed with it. And I yeah, I I love just how weird it is and how it's only rated PG, but it really pushes the envelope of what a PG movie can be. And it sure does. It re- it really does. <laughs> okay. Jumping into that though, I we have to talk about 
the actress neighbors downstairs and how they have a whole burlesque routine. Like that is, I was like, wait, is this movie for children? I have no (laughs) idea. I know. Right. Like I'd never seen animated tits like that. That was right. That was crazy. Beautiful. Like what, what was it? Um, birth of Venus. The birth of Venus. Yeah. Her bedazzled boobs. And she was like, like playing with them i was like what is that and then Coraline is just like oh my <laughs> and they're definitely lesbians like 100 percent oh, lesbian no, it's, representation it's, it's canon uh he neil himself or uh neil gaiman has said multiple times that yeah they are a couple he had based them apparently off of two women that that lived uh a pair of neighbors he had as a kid and he didn't realize they were a couple until later in life and they so his idea was to make the, these couples and treat them like as if, you know, the, the kid, you don't know if they are or not, but they totally are. So, yeah, Aww. that was that was his goal from from the very beginning. That's and so that's wholesome. what I love is that they are can, canonically queer. It's not like a after effect or something, you know, definitely. Like, oh, I love yeah, it. They're totally gay. I love their creepy like, apartment like, with their creepy taxidermy dead Scottish terriers on the walls. Oh, my God. I used to have a neighbor who had those dogs when I was growing up. <laughs> were, they taxiderm- Just, were they taxidermied on the they wall? They were not taxidermied, no. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, uh-oh. Did they get specially knit, like, wings and little dresses? <laughs> I just I love I, I don't want to leave this theater scene, though, because I don't want to get sidetracked. I love that that they are singing a song that is if you go swimming with bow legged women, I might steal your weak heart away is is what one of them sings. And then the other one, uh, Miriam Forcible is saying, but a true ocean goddess must fill out her bodice as she is grabbing her breasts <laughs> to present <laughs> on a learning dis- display. And I'm like, how? How 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 did they get this into a PG movie? Because like uh, they're like wearing gem pasties. Like I love Leica. Like they so this was their first movie, right? This is yeah. Coraline was Leica, the animation studio's first movie. So they have done movies like uh, Paranorman, Kubo and the Two Strings. I think that's all I can remember right now. But their animation style is absolutely the ridiculous. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Another reason I wanted to pick this is that's a local Portland studio. Oh, and, oh really? And I'm from Portland. And uh, Coraline also takes place in Oregon, which is where I live now. So I, I just thought that was fun. I actually got to go to Leica when I was in high school when they were making box <gasps> trolls on like a field trip for my film class. And it is no way. so incredible, like the amount of detail. And it's like a huge studio it's like a ginormous space and everybody works out of it it's in hillsborough oregon and just walking around seeing like all of the puppets and all of the sets it was totally surreal and they're so much bigger than you actually expect there were like sets that were as big as me no way that is amazing because like it's just like watching even the very of the opening credits when um the other mother is taking the dolls and sewing them so meticulously and putting in the hair on the Coraline doll. Like it's just, they could, they are doing that with animation, which I think is absolutely gorgeous. The way that it just feels so real and so beautiful to look at. It's wow. (laughs) That opening scene is actually quite terrifying. The idea that she is taking this doll that is obviously 
representative of a human person and she is slicing up a child's body pulling out the entrails aka the, the cotton turning the body inside out and then stuffing them with sawdust where sawdust is like if you think about it in, in the way that it's it's being represented it is a waste product made of leftovers of a useful item so she is taking this body and stuffing it with waste products and it's obviously supposed to be representative of all the kids that she has killed over the years like this is the what the vibe is giving from this movie and the fact that this movie starts off just by opening up this this with this scene is amazing but also like wow i i i'm just i'm amazed that this movie kind of got made there's so way. much to unpack <laughs> there there's so much to unpack with this movie and Especially like not knowing when you first see it and you see that scene, not knowing what it means and then rewatching right. it after, you know, the story unravels. It's really dark. It's so dark. And I also love that, that her hands are like these metallic needly type things, but they also kind of remind me of I was getting and I don't know if I know Mary Beth seen this movie. I don't know if you have, but the the opening to A New Nightmare to the the Wes Craven's new nightmare nightmare on Elm street film mm. where like it has like the robotic Freddy hand. Like it is giving me that kind <laughs> of feel to it. And I'm just like, this is really dark. <laughs> it's true. They, they are very similar. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I want to, I want to know when you saw this, Mary Beth, um, what, did you see it in the theater? How old were you? when you I saw did. This? So I was 16 when I saw this. Okay. I was 16. I saw it in the theater with my family. So, and I have, so I have two younger brothers. One brother is only two years younger than me, and the other one is nine years younger than me. So he would have been eight. No, Math. not eight. Math hard. How, so, how, old, how old is he now? He was seven. He was seven. <laughs> got it. I got there. I made it happen. <laughs> this is why I am a writer. And right. not in any kind of technical field. That was embarrassing how long that took me. <laughs> but anyway, because my brother was so much younger than me, like we, it was always like, oh, we have to go see a movie that's good for Tommy. So I got to see a lot of those movies in theaters. And Coraline, it didn't scare me, but I loved it. Because I was like, this was when I was like really in my stride of like creepy stuff, like really getting into horror. And so this was just like exactly what I wanted. And it was... I don't even remember my brother being that scared of it. I think we just had a really good time because it was so pretty to look at. But there are a couple scenes that we'll talk about that like were cemented in my mind. Like the one that I really always think about and hear the music all the time is when she goes to the dancing mouse circus in the other world with um Bobinski. Mr. Mr. Bobinski. And why being Mr. Bobin Mr. Mobinski freaked me out both in the real world and the other world, like his proportions and his way of moving. Were just <laughs> his belly, like, his belly is just wrong. <laughs> his, the way it moves. Right. Like the giant belly and the very skinny legs and like the way he just throws himself around. Like I, so, he is burned into my brain. And, and his so, blue skin. Oh, like, I know. <laughs> he looks like Skeeter from Doug. If he was like stretched out and got really old. You guys remember Skeeter from Doug? Did either of you watch Doug? Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> what's what's Doug? It's an animated show from Nickelodeon from like oh. the nineties, early two thousands. Yeah, no. Sorry, I, Terry. <laughs> not familiar. I don't know her. But you don't know her. No. But the scene 
when the the mice come out and bounce around and play the music for some reason i don't even think it scared me but that song and that scene are like the first thing i think about when i think about Coraline. the music is really great in this film all of the little jingles that the dad (sighs) sings and the music is really pretty it's it reminds me of joanna newsom if you've ever listened to her like very like beautiful it it sounded like a harp like very like simple notes on a string some kind of string instrument and then like the kind of fairy-like voice in the background singing in in a different language and those are my favorite songs but then also when she's walking down to the well at the end when she's like singing to herself like i bring you cups of something i bring you cups of ice and it's Uh, just like porridge ice cream yeah that's right (laughs) that's right what i'm what i'm gathering is that this this movie didn't scare either of you. And I, I can't say that when I first saw it that it scared me, but I do think Neil Neil Gaiman had said that his 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 book and the the story of it seems to scare adults more than it scares kids. And you know, my introduction to the to Coraline was through I was obsessed with with Neil Gaiman as a writer mm-hmm. ever since I I read um, a book that he had co-wrote with uh, Terry Pratchett called Good Omens. Yeah. And then I fell completely head over heels with him when I read Neverwhere, which is one of my favorite books that I've I've read. And I remember hunting down and reading anything that that Neil Gaiman had written. Mm-hmm. And so I picked up this book Coraline and I was like it came out I think in like 2002. I think I probably read it in either 2002 or 2003. So it's probably like mm-hmm. I don't know, early 20s at the very at the very least. And mm-hmm. I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to read this because I'm a completionist, but it's a kid's book. And yet I was so mm-hmm. obsessed with this book when it, when I, when I read really? it, I, yeah, I, I just, it was like firing on all, on all cylinders for me. I just, I loved it so much. So I was so excited when the movie came out and I remember seeing it open tonight and it, it brought me back to that feeling of being a kid in the eighties watching the, the sort of older movies that felt a little bit more dangerous than a lot of. Uh, kids movies mm. seem to be um, in the late 90s, early 2000s. So, like, I, I think this movie is is grand. And I, I loved that it was I think it was getting away with more things simply because it was animated. Vice mm-hmm. being like, yeah, real. But it brought me back to that feeling. For sure. And like, like you said, watching it now as an adult, I actually like her parents are terrible. Like her parents are like, leave me alone. Don't talk to me. But I also felt like identified with that a little bit because I think when I was younger, I was like, I'll never be like that. I'll never be so busy and tired. And um, lo and behold, here I am <laughs> busy and tired, <laughs> but with no children. So it was it's interesting watching it now and kind of empathizing for where the adults might be coming from and the guilt they have from working too much. So that made me a little sad. (laughs) Absolutely. Like the film starts with the parents as kind of the villains. You're supposed to really, you know, not like them. And then you realize they're human (laughs) and we all grow up to be like that one day. That was the thing that I really noticed on this watch is just how tired her parents seem to be. And on one hand, I'm like, okay, but they're also kind of treating Coraline really shittily, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. But on the other side of things, like, you could see 
uh, especially the father, how his eyes are just like it, it's they, they look like he has two black eyes, like he got punched. He is so tired that his entire eyeball is like black and and just sunken in and he is frazzled. And I loved I did also like the dichotomy between the two where she is working on a laptop and he is working on a, like a CRT, like an old 90s style computer typing away in his little office with the black screen and the green text. I was yes. like, and then the, when Caroline, Coraline accidentally turns the light switch off at all, he loses all of the text. <laughs> I really empathized with him there. I was really, yes. like, yeah. upon a rewatch as an adult, I was like, mm, I'm not really team Coraline right now. <laughs> right. I know. I thought the same thing. I'm like, I would fucking, I would, there would be a homicide about to happen. I also identified with him because as a writer, I was like, mm, I feel that when you're just writing and writing and you're like, I just, I'm a zombie and my eyes are so tired. <laughs> And the flip-flops. Like, he's really going through it. <laughs> oh, my God. He's so... He is just such a good, dumb movie dad. I love him. He... Actually, both of her parents look a lot like my parents. Oh, um, really? Yeah. I think really? that's another another reason why I kind of connected with this movie. <laughs> that's I love that. Did, did your dad have a neck like that where it was like parallel? To <laughs> no, he has a normal neck. Okay, good. good. I'm very glad to hear that, though. <laughs> My mom is not Terry Hatcher either, unfortunately. Oh, well, I love you know, Terry that's Hatcher. Okay. She's okay. She is so good, and it's so funny because okay, Terry Hatcher was in Desperate Housewives, right? Mm -hmm. I'm like not misremembering that. So I never watched Desperate Housewives, but my mom did, and I was obsessed with the commercials for Desperate Housewives. Like, and I was when I was old enough, my mom let me watch episodes, and I had no idea what was going on. But like, I was obsessed with these glamorous women that always wore high heels. And so I became like, I have never been a high heel person, a big makeup person. But for some reason, I just like was obsessed with these women. And um, I loved Terry Hatcher, mostly through commercials and snippets of (laughs) Desperate Housewives. It's so interesting. She has such a sweet voice. That's why she's great in this role. Because it's so manipulative. And like, you don't want to believe that she's this evil entity because her voice is just so kind and calm it's so sweet and i also this makes me want her to do more voice acting like why didn't terry hatcher do more voice acting because she is so good like with navigating those tones and everything and being like the villain and the sweet mom yeah definitely when the other mother turns around and says you're just in time for supper dear with this like monotone creepy yet cheery voice at the same time and you see those buttons for the first time it's like nightmare fuel (laughs) yes and then the father when we meet him and he is playing piano and she makes like comment that like her dad doesn't play piano and he replies like the piano plays me and the hands kind of come out and it starts forcing him to play a song and he's like making up a song about Coraline it's it's such a, a, a smart moment on one hand, because on one hand, you can see that it's it's kind of um, intimating that he is not in control of himself, that this whole like realm is actually made up and is just a performative piece. And at the other time, it's like it's really it's it's a really awesome uh, set piece for Leica to, to create, like the way the camera turns around and spins around him and he's like playing the piano. It's such a, a well-crafted yeah. scene, but it's also really disturbing this whole movie is like disturbing 
if you like, if you really watch it, every single thing about it is upsetting. Like, yeah, the colors are pretty, and these parts are really cool to watch, and like, wow, they're like technically amazing. And then you really think about it, and you're like, this is all really sad, and yeah, dark, really dark. It's like a bad trip too. It really descends into <laughs> a bad trip. <laughs> like when Keith David, who's the voice of the cat, starts talking, like I was like, that is like something would happen in a bad trip. You're just like, is the cat? <laughs> Is the cat talking to me? Like I was just gonna say when um all the characters start like morphing into these like weird versions of themselves from earlier, that is like a bad trip for sure. Oh my god, when um especially when um I why do I keep forgetting his name? Babinski. Babinski. When, Miss, when he's just like a weird sock monkey looking thing With the and it's just full of rats. Oh my god. And it's oh. just I think I, I just keep going back to the animation style and how animators were able to make the like those absolutely uncanny, creepy things with stop. It's, it's stop motion, right? Like the way that they're mm-hmm. able to capture this is so impressive. It's so impressive. Well, so one of the things that that really stuck out to me watching this time is how inspirations that that both the book and the movie have taken into. And you guys talk about the sort of bad trip feel of this of this movie and. I think that might be partly because I think a lot of this is pulled from Alice in Wonderland where you have like the small door and like the tunnel where, you know, that she's going to this other world, this like Wonderland, quote unquote. And the cat is sort of like a guide, but also is sort of mischievous where he can like vanish through walking past a sign and he just doesn't show up. Like it gives me that kind of Cheshire cat vibe. And then the Mm -hmm. whole way that everything sort of descends into this. I, mad, 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 mad world where it's like the moment she starts to pull at the seams, she sees just how crazy this other world really yeah. is. I totally see yeah. that. And even from like her motivations to go into this other world, you know, being bored with her life, yeah. being disappointed with, you know, reality, it, it totally is like a retelling of Alice in Wonderland. And then the other thing that um, that I, I did uh, when I was doing some some research into this, is that Neil Gaiman was kind of influenced with so the character of the new the other mother, aka the Bell Dam. Um, there's like two different sources that he sort of pulled from, and one is uh, the new mother by a Victorian author named Lucy Clifford. It was a, it was kind of a, mm. a short story that kind of went into a folk horror, um, and oh. it's been like reprinted. It was also in I don't know if you guys ever read the Scary Stories books, but it was in Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark Part Two or the second book. And it was called The Drum. Oh, and it is about these these two kids that meet. Well, in the book, it's a they call it a gypsy, quote unquote. But so they meet this this person that's like has this drum and they want the drum and she tells them you got to misbehave misbehave and so they keep misbehaving to get the drum and they never get the drum and the mother is is basically saying if you don't stop this i'm going to give you i'm going to you're going to have a new mother who has a glass eye and a wooden tail but in the uh, the tale after they've really been horrible the new mother comes to the house and so like that was the kind of inspiration mm, that's right partly for the other mother but then I also was like, I'm, I'm an English nerd. And so I got to bring it back all the way back to John Keats, who wrote. Ooh, a, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Mary Beth. I'm sorry. I was an English major, too. And I just hated John Keats. I didn't hate John Keats. I hated the person who taught me John Keats. I will not blame John Keats. I will blame, blame the person who taught me about John Keats. How about that? 
Okay. There I'll take that. <laughs> but it, one of his most famous poems was La Belle Dame Sans Mercy, The Beautiful Lady Without Mercy. And it's kind of where the, the Belle Dame comes from. So in, in, this, in this poem, it's about this knight that meets this fairy child and they sort of like woo each other. And there's a lot of language in it that could be really sexual. And she ends up bringing him to this not naughty hill and makes him fall asleep. And then when he when he's dreaming, he has this like dream. And it's such a, a vivid imagery of pale death, pale knights and kings and princes and their lips mm. are starved. And they whisper a horrid warning about how like she's she has the you in her in her thrall and he wakes up on this like cold hill and he's alone and and pale and it almost seems as if like he meets someone that entices him and then eats eats him eats him from the inside is kind of mm. the the feeling that this poem gives and i think you can really see that in the other mother huh that is very true he is getting warned she is getting warned by so many people like hey don't the Maybe. other thing that I kind of wanted that like this, this brought up in my mind was that that poem inspired a lot of um, artists to create visual representations of this knight and this like otherworldly woman. And it became an early example of 19th century femme fatale icon iconography mm. as her being potentially one of the first, at least English forms of the, the femme fatale in like English poems and it like created the huh. 19th century ideal of it. And I think you can, I'm, I'm curious what you guys think about looking at uh, the other mother as a potential femme fatale. Ooh, see, I was, I, I was thinking about this and I don't, I didn't read her as a femme fatale at all because I feel if, like with femme fatales, it has a lot to do with like sexual romantic attraction and how she, like the femme fatale manipulates that mm. to get her way. And in this one, it feels it's more of a motherhood, motherly love and wanting to covet children for that kind of love rather than romantic love. Okay. But maybe it could be an interesting discussion about like femme fatale and motherhood, but I didn't read her as one at all. I was just thinking of the way that she uses en enchanting abilities to yeah, entice people. I mean, granted it's, it's a, it's, a quote unquote daughter, even though she doesn't really, isn't really a daughter, but the idea that like she presents yeah. this put together form on the outside, that's like alluring. And in, in this particular case is sort of like a familial alluring, but is actually leading Coraline into a trap. I would say you could argue that because I mean, she's putting on a front, she's, she's wearing a disguise mm -hmm. of kind of a femme fatale figure when underneath she's just like this ugly old witch bug woman. <laughs> so I, I think that, I mean, you could definitely argue that in her facade for sure. Yeah. Cause I do think, I mean, I, I do think that you're, you're right, Mary Beth, that, a, that when we think about like the femme fatale, it's usually a sexual thing or it's usually like the, mm -hmm. the, the woman that like ends up betraying our, our lead like male because he's fallen to her feminine wiles. But like, I don't know. I just I, I think it's interesting to think of, of a different uh, representation of of that trope. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Huh. That's so interesting. I never I like I never would have ever thought that. Huh. Cool. But then we also have the ghosts. Can we talk about those ghosts? Oh, Ooh. yes. Those very <laughs> sad ghosts. 
So tragic. When she finds this really horrific room that is like so devoid of anything except like a wire rim bed that doesn't even have like a mattress on it. And these ghosts are like people that she has killed. (laughs) Well, and they're just stuck in this in this room that is so opposite of what the rest of the house is like the rest of the house is is in this other world is so put together it's so nice everything is so happy like i love the small details about there's a there's a painting in the real world where a kid has like lost his uh his ice cream cone it's splat on the ground but in the other world he's like licking it up and eating it like it's everything is so happy and then you have this one little room where these poor little ghosts are huddled under a cover on this wireframe bed it's so it's so sad. Well, and like they say that they keep, they they live with her forever, and then they ate them. She ate them up. They ate their lives up. And <sighs> I was like, "What the fuck does that even look like?" Like that was what was horrifying watching it this time. Just thinking about like, what does that mean to eat your lives up? It's not that she ate us. She ate up our lives, which is so much more grotesque sounding to me. Like it's more than just she just ate a bunch of kids. Like she she ate their Hold being. Them out. It's like that image in the in the opening of the movie where she's cutting open the doll and pulling out their insides. What makes them them and filling them with sawdust? And so I know that the the landlord, it's her her sister disappeared. So why did she let Coraline move in? Did she not know? Did her parents? This is a very dumb like that does not matter to the plot. But he was. I remember YB YB saying like, "Oh, I don't think she knew." Okay. Because at the at the end, Coraline goes to she's like, "Oh, I have so much to tell you." When she meets okay. YB's grandmother, okay. So I think she is like giving her the closure, true, that she didn't have. You know, I, I think that's such an interesting part of the film, though, having YB's grandmother grown up, yeah, and have been the twin of this this ghost girl. That's what makes it feel really, you know sad and wrong and and disturbing for a child's movie well, and like she kept it she kept this apartment building and is renting it out and like is just in the shadow of where her sister disappeared it's so sad yeah. and also it's really sad what i will say is also sad is yb um because his name is yb because it's his name is y born and that <laughs> i know why were you born that's literally the meanest yeah, and then she doesn't Coraline's, the meanest thing Coraline's such a bitch like i love <laughs> she's she just really like is. why we love we love her we love but her yeah she's a bitch oh, yeah like she's a badass but why were you born the way she asked that question oh my god it's just and i don't know if i ever really thought about it but like being called why were you born it's just like wow that poor kid is just set up for failure for the rest of his life like he is just constantly reminded I dig the names in this movie. Me too. But speaking of which, even when we get to the other YB and when mother introduce him and her, her line is something about, I thought you'd like him more if he spoke a little less. So I fixed him. And it's, it's so horrific, especially when a little bit later, there's a scene where he is obviously not happy with his lot in life. And the mother looks at him and sort of like, does this motion over her mouth to like make sure that he's smiling and in the next scene we see him in he his face has been stitched open so that he is smiling and it's through his skin through his cheek there's a little puncture mark through it that is holding up his mouth in a facsimile of a smile and it's so 
it, it's it's really freaky to look at, especially with the little hole on his cheek where the where it's like threaded through. Mm-hmm. But it's also so incredibly sad. I mean, just continuing with that idea of sadness, like his character is just in both. He does he does not have a good lot in life in either world. I really feel for these doppelgangers because. It's so interesting to have them be like the other versions of the characters we know, but also be human and and be being controlled by the other mother. Like, who are yeah. they? Yeah, I, I don't. You know what I, I mean? Yeah, because they all the have. The dad is also sympathetic to Coraline. They're not the other versions, really. They are. They they like. They have. They could empathize and like. They have their own kind of agency in a way. They don't have a lot of it, but there is like some semblance of agency. And it, you do wonder, like, what is what is this? Like, who is she in prison to be mm-hmm. her her puppets? Mm-hmm. Especially like when we the last time we see the other YB, he's like a flag on the house. Oh, that's, oh, that's right. right. Yes. Oh my god. Well, so the thing that uh, I think is interesting about this other world as well is that one of the themes that we've we sort of see throughout this movie is this idea of uh, entertainment in like a, a theatrical sense. You have Mr. Bobinski with his his rat circus, his my circus, and you have the burlesque performers whose house in both worlds is like a stage. I, I love in in the real world when she walks through and it's like going through the, the velvet like curtain and then their house is almost set up like a stage. And then in the other world, it is a complete and utter theater. But that is what this world is. This other world, it's like a theater. It's, it's yeah. all of these characters that are there to distract you to entertain you to to basically like lull you into a safe sense of like this is just entertainment this is just you know fun but it, behind the, the scenes it's it's not i mean the world is is literally made up like i love that scene towards the end where everything starts to unravel and it's like it's just it's a facade it's like going to disney world yeah and like it looks pretty on the outside but behind it is just a lot of a lot of gears and everything keeping everything working Ooh, Disney World now feels very feels very scary. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that I noticed this time is the food, uh, mm. because the food in the real world is so gross. <laughs> when her dad cooks, <laughs> your dad, your dad cooks, and I clean, <laughs> and you stay out of the way. It, it's charred. It's a vegetable, and she, it looks like slime. It's so gross looking. But then in the and then in the other world, it's like you know, it's pizzas and cupcakes and mango yeah. milkshakes. I've never had a mango milkshake. I know, I kind of had... Okay, next time, if you ever go to an Indian restaurant, have you ever had mango lassi? Oh mm-hmm. my god! Okay, next time you go to an Indian restaurant, order mango lassi. It is a mil- mango milkshake, and it is one of the most delicious things on this planet. Oh, okay. So it does, it does exist. exist. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're not. I was like, I have never. It heard does of exist, that. and it is. <laughs> delicious and now i really want a mango lassi but yes they do exist i also i don't know are you are you you a cat owner at all hannah i am i love cats (laughs) the scene where cat is sitting on her chest and like just batting her face to like wake her up and purring i was like okay whoever wrote did this scene has had a pet because i don't know if you guys have ever had that experience but I have had a 25-pound cat sitting on my chest just going <laughs> brr, 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 and waking you up at, like, 3 in the morning. 
my cat does that. My, my big boy, he's 12, um, and everybody, he weighs 17 pounds now. The vet has told us that he needs to lose some weight. He thinks he's tiny and loves to either like step on your stomach and just mm-hmm. purr on your chest, or he wraps his head around your head. He drops his body around your head when you're sleeping and will just purr right in your ear. And it's so cute. It's so annoying, but it's so cute. Pats your nose. Hey, hey, you. <gasps> Pay attention love- to me. So that mine don't pat my nose, thankfully. Oh, mine did. One time, though, Tiramisu, my kitten, um, woke me up by running full force right into my face. And even though she's only five pounds, having a cat running that fast parkouring off of your jaw when you're dead asleep... Not my favorite way to wake up. <laughs> oh my god! Um, me and Carly both have cats, and they oh. fight all oh, the no. time, <laughs> running all around our house. It, it's cute; like they're fun. Oh, fighting, are they? But... Are they babies? No, no, they're like three. Oh, so they're just having a good time. Oh, I love cats. They're just vibing. Just vibing. <laughs> When I had two cats, I had my 25-pound one would chase my, like, six-pound one around the house at three in the morning (gasps) and use my chest as a bouncing board. So you'd get, like, this, like, six-pound cat leaping off of you, and then, like, two seconds later, here comes the 25-pounder just barreling into you. I forgot that you had a 25-pound cat. Yeah, she's a Maine Coon. She was huge. Maine Coon? She was a big kitty. Wow. So back to the movie, though. <laughs> cats, cats only. <laughs> only talk about cats. I want to talk about Henry Selleck. Okay. The director. I feel he has gotten a raw deal through his career because most people, when they think of The Nightmare Before Christmas, think of Tim Burton. And he was the director of that movie. Henry Selleck directed that movie. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he, I don't think, like, I think probably people in that write about or talk about or know about film know that. But like most people do not know that he was the director of Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. Wait, what? Yeah. What? It's not, it's not a Tim Burton film. He wrote it, well, then... but it's, it, it's oh. a Henry Selleck film. I was actually shook because I only learned that this week and I am a huge Tim Burton fan, Nightmare Before Christmas fan. And um, yeah, that really surprised yeah, me. Good. Wait, what? Most- uh, I'm, gl- I'm like gl- I'm like glitching out. Like what? <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. What are you- <laughs> Our life is a lie. Everything we know. Yeah, because uh, it, I mean, his it, Tim Burton's name is on it. It's Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. And normally, if it, if that person's name is in front, they're the director. But no, Henry Selleck directed a Nightmare Before the Nightmare Before Christmas. And I don't think he gets the credit that he is due for making these fantastic stop motion animation movies because then he went on to do james and the giant peach oh yes that's one that freaked me out as a kid i the night hadn't thought about until just now yeah that one's freaky he's also doing something called wendell and wild that's a stop motion that's shooting here i think jordan peele Oh yeah, it's a key. It's a key and peel uh, stop motion <gasps> horror film that he's Ooh, directing. The synopsis is: two demon brothers face off against a nun and a pair of goth teens in order to earn their way out of hell. Holy shit! That sounds right on my alley. Like everything I've ever wanted. That is so. I like to see uh, Jordan Peele working with Keegan yeah, Michael Key again. That's and on nice. a, hor- a horror thing, <laughs> that'll be. Wait, that makes me so sad that he wasn't that he isn't he's the director and it's all given to Tim Burton. I'm actually very mad. 
Yeah. Sorry. This is like a very <laughs> my world has been my world has been turned upside down right now. Well, I, it's it, you, wow. people just assume because Tim Burton's name's attached to it, and it's totally like Tim Burton's style. But like, yeah, he he directed it. I would I would be so fucking angry. Right. <laughs> I would be so fucking angry. I mean, I guess he still got the money from it, but if everyone's like, "Oh, it's Tim Burton," I'd be like, "Okay, mm, well, wow." Anyway, we can move on now. <laughs> I wonder if like directing stop motion is like kind of a niche thing that I I don't know. I wonder why Tim Burton didn't direct it. But I wonder if it's because it was animated. Because he did Frankenweenie. Yeah, but he did Frankenweenie after, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Frankenweenie. But, but, but Frankenweenie oh, was a, yeah. was a short. Was a short before like on one of his first movies. It was a short. Yeah, but it, I I think it was a live action short. Oh, though. okay, okay, okay. The, the other one I yeah. was thinking of was Corpse Bride, but I just real I looked it up on Letterboxd because I was like, the Corpse Bride is that way. It was directed by Tim Burton and Mike Johnson, so I wonder if like hmm. Mike Johnson had something to do with the um more of the animation stuff because well, and also that was also a leica um contract film so okay. it wasn't it, like a leica film was. but they did do contract work on it oh okay because i was thinking about that today because corpse bride was another one of my favorites like i love that movie so much like i wanted to be the dead girl um i, I don't know what that means but anyway um <laughs> But I loved this movie so fucking much. And I, I thought about it as Laika. So that makes sense. Well, and I, I do think kind of huh. going back to what you were saying about about Henry directing um, Nightmare Before Christmas. He, you know, before he did do stop motion animation, he was attached to a bunch of um, 80s animated uh, Disney movies. He worked on mm-hmm. I think he was uncredited, but he worked on both The Black Cauldron and The Great Mouse Detective as an animator. Uh, was he the one that made them put the that sexy rat into it? Because I'm gonna, I'll fucking fight him if he was the one that put that sexy mouse in it. This <laughs> kitty, the mouse. Anyway, <laughs> wow, that is that is mind blowing. You've blown my mind today. Ew, Tim Burton. That's gross. I love Tim Burton, but like I kind of think Tim Burton's a douchebag. He is. He's such a douchebag. Like I, I obviously was, I was one of those kids that fucking loved Tim Burton because how could you not? And like Nightmare Before Christmas, like merch all the time. And I still love his work, Mm -hmm. most of it, but he is a douchebag. I think. I think he's just like. He said some really questionable things that I was disappointed. Disappointed like, to hear. Sir, you make creepy things about Johnny Depp, like looking dead and scared. Like, I don't really think you have much authority. Like, <laughs> just keep your mouth shut. Just keep your mouth shut. <laughs> anyway, this has turned into an anti Tim Burton podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we should have known back from the night before oh, Christmas. <laughs> Man. Um, so, is. Did you guys see? Oh, no, oh no, sorry. Go ahead. You. I was just going to see if you guys saw Paranorman. I love Paranorman I so love much. Paranorman. And it has a gay kid. It's a really good, it's a really good follow-up to, to Coraline, I think. I haven't seen the rest of their films, actually, but Paranorman's Kubo great. is gorgeous. Definitely check out Kubo. Um, 
in the two strings because Matthew McConaughey is also the voice of a uh, of a Beatle, and it is a beautiful, beautiful film to watch. Like you can just see how their films get more, like they get even more and more and more talented as these films come out, which seems insane because like Coraline and Paranorman are absolutely breathtaking, but what they can accomplish in Kubo is breathtaking. Yeah, oh, I've yeah, only, I've only seen Paranorman and uh, and Coraline, uh, but I I do love Paranorman so much, especially since it has some gay representation in it. Oh yeah, the brother. I need to watch this again. Yes, I haven't seen it in a long time. I just love like the Halloween like yeah, kind the of Salem yes. vibes. Yeah, yeah. that's what I love about this too. Is that I love the way it looks. I lo- I just love. Yes. The kind of gothic Victorian feel of everything that has to do with the house and the the garden. I love the garden both in both worlds. The one where it's both like dying and the one where it's like refreshed and it's there's like heart vines and snapdragons that are really snapdragons. Like I, I love both representations of that garden. Like the attention to detail is yeah. just so impressive. Yeah. And I, I, I love, I, I especially love kind of talking, bringing it back to the the Scotch Terriers. I love the scene where they're the audience. It's it's so, it's kind of freaky, but the entire audience is full of these dogs that are just like barking their approval at the stage. It's both like really funny, but and kind of cute, but also like surreally horrific. Just imagining an audience full of dogs giving like a standing. <laughs> that would be truly terrifying if it really happened. Like, if you really witnessed that. Would it be? <laughs> I, I, I would be scared. Bats. <laughs> well, that part where they turn into bats is, is freaky. That is not something that I would like to see. Before we do end, though, I, I, I'm kind of amazed that we haven't really talked about the scariest, for me, scene where... The mother is talking about how, you know, well, this could be forever. You could stay with us forever. There's just one tiny thing you have to do. And then there's a box with two button eyes and a spool of thread. And the implications. Like in a little beautiful, like a beautifully wrapped box. Yes. And the obvious, I mean, it's not even implications, but the, the implications of what has to be done when you really think about it is really horrific. I think it's the most terrifying moment of the movie for me. Tear out your eyes, girl. It's fine. It's so sharp. It won't even hurt. The father says. (laughs) Then she hits him. (laughs) And they're so like the both of the voice actors are just so good at sounding friendly and like really manipulative. You want, you know, you want to believe that. Black is traditional, but if you prefer vermilion, we have other colors. (laughs) just no and like it 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 is such like a nonchalant part too like you know there's so many other scenes of like that are like grandiose and like a spectacle and that one it's just a very simple at the dinner table sliding her a little present it looks like all the other presents they've given her and it's just two two beautiful shiny black eyes it's great just put them on just yeah just slip those slip those right in your uh your eye hole right there right and it's like it's not even just like you're putting them on, like just popping them on there. Like you are sewing your eyes shut. Ah, it's some hostile shit right there. It really is. I, <laughs> the, the, the implied, the implied body horror in this in this movie is uh, 
something else. Well, especially as the Beldam's body changes mm. and how she like is morphing from, you know, a mom into this needly spider creature. And it's like so it's gradual too the way like she starts kind of getting pointier and pointier. And then her face I was kind of confused what she was because there's a web. She feels a little spiderish, but she also kind of reminds me a little bit of like a praying mantis. And so I was I, I think was, she's. I was kind of I was struggling with what she was, which is fine for me because I am terrified of spiders and I don't want to have more spiders <laughs> in my life. So the fact that I was confused is actually probably a blessing in in some ways. Yeah. But it felt like they were combining. A I different... always thought she was a spider because she's like eating the bugs mm. too. That's, That's yeah. I guess having probably. all the bug stuff did make me think. The body horror point you just made is great. Also, the the women downstairs, Miss Forcible and Miss Fink. When they are like their bodies are like combined oh, into like yes. some hard candy. Yes. Oh my god. That's very body horror. Their arms and, are arms are entwined, and then I guess uh, my messenger Bobinski has rats. Like his his body has just like melted away. I guess. Oh. Well, and like when the cat you know kills the mouse for the first time, and it's revealed to actually be this large, ugly rat that is full of sawdust. Uh, like it just yes. it continues that theme of like what is going, what are these people, and what will end up to uh, Coraline's body if she were to stay here. You know what I mean? Like that yeah. is the implication that that I think they can get away with because a it's it's animated, and b it's more implied than than specific, but. It's still, I think, really, it, it adds this idea of, of actual physical stakes to this movie that I don't think a lot of um, animation, or I guess kids' movies from this time really had. I mean, if you compare it to, like, Goosebumps, the Goosebumps movie, or, like, to House with the Clock on the Walls a little, you know, later, like, the, the 2000s, I don't feel like they have as much, they feel a little bit more cartoony in being realistic than the stakes of this movie are kind of implying. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the cat. She wants something to love. Something <laughs> that isn't her. Or maybe she just loved to eat. Uh, same. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> like, just kidding. Sort of. <laughs> Do we want to wrap up and give us a rating out of five, everybody? Sounds good to me. All right, Terry. How many taxidermied Scottish Terriers out of five do you give Coraline? Oh, there's so many of them in this movie. <laughs> Um, but I am going to pick out of the many taxidermy uh, Scottish Terriers that are in this movie. I'm going to pick four and a half of them because I do think that this this movie Coraline brings danger back to family horror in the early 2000s in ways that I don't I don't think necessarily existed in a lot of kids horror that I remember from this time period. And it brought me back mm -hmm. to the late 80s, early 90s, where I would watch a lot of movies that were when I was a kid for kids, but didn't insult kids intelligence. They were surreal and scary, like the labyrinth and movies of that ilk. It kind of brought me back to that, to that feeling. And mm -hmm. I do think because this movie has actual stakes and a lot, a lot of implied violence that it feels a little bit more grown up than a lot of kids movies usually do. And I think this, this movie is great to watch as an adult. I, I don't think it loses any of its edge. And in some ways, I think it gains more of an edge. And I think it's a really great adaptation of a really good children's book. Uh, so yeah. I'm going to cut one of those taxidermied <laughs> Scottish Terriers in half and give it four and a half. What about you, Mary Beth? <laughs> Talk about body horror. What a, 
what a what a weird thing to think about and to say. <laughs> um, so I'm actually going to give it five taxidermied Scottish terriers oh, um, because I just watching it, rewatching it, I just fell in love with it all over again, and I just was at awe of what this the visual experience is, how complex the story is, and how much. I still love it, even being one of the adults now, not Coraline's age. It just, it was like this beautiful piece of nostalgia and also just a beautiful piece of art that reminds me why I love movies so much. So I'm going to give it five. Yeah. So Hannah, you have the final word. How many taxidermied Scottish Terriers out of five do you give Coraline? Well, I love what both of you said. I really think it pushes what kids horror can be. And Terry, what you said about, you know, children's intelligence and bringing fear back to family horror. I, I really, that re- really resonates with me. And uh, Mary Beth, what you said about the visual experience, like the artistry, the detail, the originality. Um, I just think this is an iconic piece of art that children are going to be watching for many years. And I would give it five taxidermied Scottish Terriers out oh, of yeah. five. Hell I love that. yeah. Yay. Uh-huh. Well, thank you so much, Hannah, for joining us to talk about uh, Coraline. Where can our listeners find you and what do you have coming up that you can share? So you can find uh, all of us and all of our work at www.monstrousfemfilms.com. And I am on Instagram and Twitter at Hannah May Films. And coming up, uh, I have a summer camp creature featurette called Camp Calypso that I wrote and co-directed with Carly Boone that should be being released online in spring summer and then i have another film that i'm working on just finished the script for it's a 70s prom night (gasps) pro-choice body horror short film called baby fever that i hope to be able to make sometime this year like all of your all of your movies just speak my language so much like they are just so good immaculate (laughs) vibes um (laughs) so uh listeners you've heard from us we want to hear from you what was your experience with Coraline you can send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com or you can reach out to us directly on twitter i am at mb mcandrews and i'm a gaily dreadful and of course make sure to follow the podcast on twitter at scarred podcast and don't forget to review rate and subscribe Thank you to Eric Power for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Stay safe out there, but most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right 
and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.